0: For some reason that we'll probably never fully understand, an extraordinary outpouring of energy began to occur around the year 1100. It was so powerful and so passionate that it transformed the way the world looked and thought about God, about justice and power, about women, love, and art. This story starts with the almost unbelievable life of the woman we will come to know as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor had virtually everything this life can grant. Sunlit beauty, inherited power and wealth on a phenomenal scale. Kings as husbands, kings as sons. She lived an epic life in the middle of a whirlwind. Entangled with five mightily powerful men who fought for more than a century to control Western Europe. Surrounding them is an incredible array of people who lived in that world doing incredible things, from building stone cathedrals that streamed with sunlight to fighting two crusades, to inventing fictional characters we still read about. We know of only a few of them, and what we do know of even these favored few is limited by their records and our own comprehension. Come with us as we journey to meet Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry Plantagenet, Richard Lionheart, King John, and all the remarkable people surrounding them. To be in their presence is an exhilarating experience. Won't you join us?
1: Welcome to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic story of Five Kings and the Lion Queen. Episode 4, A Cup of Rock Crystal. The year is 1137. Chroniclers of the day, in the year of our Lord 1137, said that a thousand noble guests came to witness the marriage vows of Duchess Eleanor of Aquitaine and her prince, Louis Capet of France, speculating avidly about this couple's future and how that future would affect their own fortunes. Some chronicles reported that Louis's father the king could barely speak without stammering, so intense was his delight. What frantic haste must have gone into that betrothal and wedding, wardrobes to make, palaces swept, swans and peacocks readied for the table, taxes raised to pay for it all. The bride thought to gift her husband with something Wood would think precious to her, a cup made of the shimmering quartz called rock crystal like running water turned to transparent stone, inherited from her grandfather, Duke William IX. Let's take a moment. This handsome wedding gift, a truly beautiful thing, hollowed and precisely faceted by the hand of an unknown master craftsman, most likely an Arab, still exists. Known as the Eleanor Vase, it's now in the Louvre in Paris although so changed that she might not recognize it. Going back to this splendid wedding, there were also complicated marriage documents to prepare and sign, the future of entire dynasties riding on them. It was agreed, when her oldest son became king of France, he would also gain her titles to the Aquitaine and to Poitiers, the three noble realms gloriously joined for the first time. Until that day which could not possibly be far off, it was thought, the Aquitaine and Portier remained hers. What was obviously needed now was mating, birth, and long life to a baby boy. The groom was 17, his bride 13 or so, about the age her mother had been when she had married. They were known to be distantly related, a fact which would eventually change both their own lives and European history, but now the old tie between the two families was considered little more than a footnote to this marriage of blood, wealth, and power. History locks onto the doomed relationship of Eleanor and Louis Capet, but this was, after all, the 12th century. Few aristocratic marriages were romantic unions of soulmates. Contemporaries already mocked the hopeless gap between love and marriage in their society. The former treasured for all its too rare emotional immediacy. The latter painstakingly worked out to protect the gains of ten generations. At the beginning of their wedded life, nothing particularly sets Prince Louis and Eleanor apart from anyone marrying dynastically in their day, including their own parents and grandparents. The couple could easily have been dead and forgotten by the following spring. Instead, it was King Louis VI, the prince's father, who died. He had been sick and growing sicker for years, now asking to be robed in a monk's habit to signify profound penitence for his sins. He then stretched his aching body on a crucifix of ashes spread across the stone floor, Bloody dysentery killed the old warrior now grown so fat, not a pleasant sort of death. Louis Capet and Eleanor, teenagers married for a handful of days, were suddenly the new king and queen of France. Our heroine, Eleanor of Aquitaine, would directly affect European history for the better part of a century, but there was no steadfast biographer who recorded her during her lifetime, One history of the Middle Ages observes that rarely has so much been written over so many centuries about one woman of whom so little is really known. So what can we make of this lady after almost a thousand years? In the eyes of her contemporaries, she was first and last a female, wealthy and well-born, true, but still a woman. A firstborn son would be feted by the chroniclers before he even left the birthing bed. She was merely named another Aenor, after her mother, and no one bothered to write down the date she was born, leading to a centuries-long debate about whether it was 1122 or 1124. We know she could read and write, both Latin and her native language, Poitevin but we have found fewer than five personal documents in her own voice. She was written about, but contemporary descriptions of women were routine, as in she was beautiful, not to mention colored by deep uneasiness with powerful females. Chroniclers of the day did not concern themselves with Eleanor's intelligence, strength, warmth, or wit. Instead, as Cleopatra's biographer Stacy Schiff said of her Egyptian queen, Eleanor of Aquitaine survives primarily as a temptress. Not the last time a genuinely powerful woman has been transmuted into a shamelessly seductive one. So it was with Eleanor. Much of her scandalous reputation that continues to fascinate so many was invented decades and even centuries after her death. Her inheritance of the wealthy, powerful Aquitaine made her exceptional, but not unique. People of her day were uncomfortable with females as heirs, given that the Bible itself stressed that male dominion was the natural rule. And there were more pragmatic problems with women on thrones. Physically weaker and possibly less bloodthirsty than men, they had to face down powerful and extremely determined male competitors for territory. Even if an heiress enjoyed abnormally placid times, she still owed an annual feudal obligation of active military service to those higher up the fealty ladder, a problem commonly solved by marrying to protect her birthright. The lucky husband then ruled, usually absorbing her lands into his and eventually passing both to their heirs. A great many noble dynasties were built quite literally on the backs of ladies in line to take crowns. Eleanor's grandmother, Philippa, held a legitimate claim to the province of Toulouse, part of her appeal to Eleanor's grandfather, Duke William IX. Still, direct women heirs, even to great properties, were not unknown. According to historian Thomas Kuhn, women often inherited when there was no direct male heir, which meant that a male lord could interact with at least one female peer in his lifetime. However, there was one key exception to the grudging acceptance of female inheritance. The French did not permit it. No woman could ever rule France, making a male heir essential to a French king. The more easygoing Aquitanians, who had never had a female ruler before, were less dogmatic. Eleanor's right to succeed her father, Duke William X, was generally accepted, beginning with the Aquitanian knights who swore fealty to her even before her father died, when she was twelve years old. She would rule this land for seventy years. Even Queen Victoria of England could not control a country and its people for so long. Yet, despite the power and authority that would seem self-evidently part of her titles and her inheritance, Eleanor spent long periods of her life in what we see as grey obscurity, certainly including her years as Queen of France. Her fertile mother-in-law, Adelaide of Maurienne, signed dozens of royal documents in her day. Eleanor's name can be found on only 20-odd during the 15 years she was the French queen. Most of those involve the Aquitaine, and most of the Aquitanian documents carry her signature and seal as consenting to acts of her husband's. This heiress was the first of all French queens to possess her own lands, an intelligent, educated woman raised in a family that ruled a far larger domain than that of the French kings, but it mattered very little. Eleanor of Aquitaine, who would change French history, apparently played only a minor role in Louis's official life we don't really know what the new king and queen looked like. Depictions of noble people of the day were highly stylized. All noblemen were tall, square-shouldered, and regular of feature, while noble women were golden-haired, willowy, and had alabaster complexions. The few spotty images we have of Eleanor that were made during her lifetime, such as depictions of her official seals, are all along this line. Even her tomb effigy is that of a pious 20-something maiden, despite the fact that she died at 80. She was consistently described by contemporaries as beautiful, even the most beautiful. Chroniclers were careful to note the compelling beauty of virtually any aristocratic woman powerful enough to be mentioned at all, but Eleanor earned the description often enough throughout her long life to be reasonably believable. She may have been unusually tall for the time. Her tomb effigy is long-limbed. Her ancestral DNA was split between fair-haired Aquitanians and brown-eyed, russet-bearded people from Mediterranean lands. The laws of genetics would therefore most likely have given her brown eyes and ruddy hair, probably combined with the kind of pale complexion greatly admired by her contemporaries. Given the hectic physical nature of her entire life, even as an elderly woman who wintered in the Alps and had survived ten known pregnancies, one can assume that she was eminently healthy, the product of successful genes and a fortunate childhood. Good health tends to promote good bones, good skin, and good teeth. It's not at all improbable that she was strikingly attractive especially living at a time when you could run into a leper missing parts of his face just by walking out the door. While we have only a small factual window into her childhood, we do know that her educated father, William X, born of a famously educated and artistic family, saw to it that she was taught to read and write in Latin, the language of the church and the ruling class, and Poitevin, her native tongue. She also learned to speak French. She came from generations of tough, successful people born to rule. She learned to consider and assess, to accept homage. Let's step aside for a minute. Given the prominence of homage in the lives of our medieval friends, what exactly was it? There were two types, one between equals, the other between a dominant lord and his subordinate vassal. Equals would both travel to a neutral spot, say on a mutual border, where they'd agree to some negotiated outcome, such as having one accept the rights of the other's heir to land. Both sides would then shake hands and exchange a cordial kiss on the cheek. It sounds straightforward enough, but it had its tricky aspects, especially given its impact on heirs and potential heirs, not all of whom saw life turn out as expected. On the other hand, if you were only a subordinate vassal, you'd be obliged to travel to meet your liege lord, then to kneel and acknowledge various duties and obligations you owed to him, thus paying homage. The more powerful you were, the more vassals you had. Even kings could be vassals of more powerful monarchs. It was also quite possible for vassals to have more than one lord, owing each different levels of devotion. Let's not forget, too, that a great noble could hold multiple titles, as we'll soon see in the case of the Plantagenets, who managed to be King of England, Duke of Normandy, and Count of Anjou, all at the same glorious time. As such, they proved that both types of homage could exist side by side. The Plantagenets would treat the King of France as no more than an equal when presenting themselves as the mighty Dukes of Normandy, but did pay homage to the French king, if rather casually, as vassals in their less powerful role as Counts of Anjou. As for vowing fealty, which carried the obligation of personal service, such an oath could be made to only one superior lord. If multiple demands were made on a vassal, he would first honor the man to whom he had pledged his fealty, a choice which often left the unfortunate vassal and his family at odds with everyone else. No doubt, Eleanor thought about the man she might marry, whether he would be handsome, brave, powerful. The man she did marry, Louis Capet, was born a mere second son, which meant that even in his own mother's eyes, his life was largely superfluous compared to his older brother Philip, at least so long as Philip was alive. Sociologists in our day pay attention to the prickly issues that come with being number two in the family hierarchy. Think what it meant to be a number two when the rule was that your older brother gets every valuable thing your parents have to give, while your own destiny is of considerably less interest. Louis's parents had intended him for the priesthood, not kingship. This was not unusual. Many medieval nobles directed younger sons to priestly lives. However, it's also true that the world these boys entered wasn't as restricted in existence as we might think. The Church of Louis' day was actively involved in virtually every aspect of secular life. More than a few senior churchmen had wives and children, and a great many, born into nobility, had great family fortunes of their own. One of the richest men in Western Europe at the time was the noble Bishop of Bayeux. In short, the church could see to it that those within its ranks who possessed worldly connections and talents could find plenty of room to maneuver. For that matter, there was room enough to hang oneself. The Bishop of beauvais at the turn of the 13th century, was an infamous fighting man, so much so that when he was captured by Richard Lionheart and turned to the Pope for help, the Pope shrugged that the bishop had made his own bed and he could now sleep in it. The church also met a number of psychological needs. It was a refuge for those who didn't care for the devilish snares of women and far, far safer than a lifetime spent hoping to dodge more capable swordsmen. Nor can we forget that the church, above all, was believed the one reliable path to the heavenly afterlife that everyone knew to be the only purpose of one's earthly life. No one scoffed at the idea that one or more of the family's male members should spend their lives praying for forgiveness of family sins. Still, as we've said, wealth levered itself to dominance inside the church just as it did outside, many of Catholicism's medieval leaders had moved seamlessly from great secular families to the upper ranks of churchmen. If his brother Philip hadn't fallen off his horse, Louis Capet, second son of the King of France, would almost certainly have become an abbot in one of France's great monasteries, probably an archbishop, possibly a cardinal, perhaps even a pope. Being a member of this dominant virtually inescapable institution was hardly a life sentence at hard labor for a young wealthy man. It could be a very pleasant ladder up into the highest reaches of influence and prestige. Until he was 11 years old, Louis Capet had duly accepted that he was to be his family's spiritual, not actual, guide. Then his older brother Philip, the heir to the French throne and only 15 himself, died in the mud-caked streets of Paris. According to legend, Philip lost his life when a pig rooting after garbage spooked his horse. Such stories mark the turnings of history. No longer a little boy who had always imagined himself a priest, Louis Capet suddenly had to switch his outlook entirely from sacred contemplation to the prospect of joining a king's court. He was not at all dull-witted, but even the most agile 11-year-old mind had to be rocked by such a complete about-face. If you recall, Louis Capet's own father, King Louis VI, had been forced to learn how to be a king when he was a boy himself, thanks to his father Philip's weakness under the spell of the seductive Bertrade de Montfort. Louis VI, even though his father was still alive, had essentially been forced into the role of the King of France, when only 17 years old. For whatever reason, maybe just that Louis VI was no distracted, careless Philip, his own son, Louis Capet, the seminarian, was not given the same opportunity. While he was, according to French custom, crowned as co-king upon his brother's death, he spent the next years at school. This prince didn't spend his youth learning to manage the levers of government or riding out to war. When he was seventeen, confronted with his powerful father's death, Louis Capet was still half a child, possessed of a wife one week and a throne soon thereafter. Both must have come as a distinct shock. So Eleanor and Louis marry in the summer of 1137. The thirteen-year-old duchess had just lost her father, the primary source of comfort and stability in her life and was suddenly the wife of someone she barely knew in a country where she was a foreigner. Almost before the young couple had time to change out of their wedding clothes, sober-faced ministers, eyes guarded, brought them the heart-stopping news that King Louis VI was dying on the strewn floor of his room. His son, Louis Capet, the 7th Louis to be King of France, was so raw a monarch when he took the crown that chroniclers forever after referred to him as simply as the Younger and talked much about his possessing in abundance the laudable, if not exactly royal, virtues of personal austerity, religious piety, and honesty. Even his family heraldry was gentle, with stylized golden lilies on a sky-blue field, not the rampant boars, bears, lions, and eagles favored by those of a more ferocious mindset. Eleonors, on the other hand, consisted of a terrifying lion with mighty claws extended, roaring from a blood-red background. In short, except for a long-dead mutual ancestor, all these two had in common was the death of older brothers when they were children and the death of fathers when they were in their teens. With that, we can virtually conclude the list of their similarities. They did have times of splendor, such as their magnificent procession into Poitiers, the capital of the Aquitaine, soon after their marriage, where, thanks to his wife, Louis publicly assumed the title Count of Poitou. Until this splendid young couple arrived in its streets, no French king had set foot in the city in more than three hundred years the entire population must have turned out to see them and their mile-long entourage of knights on their prancing horses, sunlit banners unfurled in the breeze, hands gloved in soft leather raised in gracious benediction. And so, Louis and Eleanor had their time of being loved by their friends and left in at least temporary peace by their enemies— There was a year or two of stability before they faced the first of their own crises. As is true for most of us, dealing with them would occupy much of their lives. As is also often true, they weren't forced to face them without resources. They ruled a vastly expanded domain, wealthy and viewed with considerable respect thanks to his father's labors and her fortune. Wars had quieted, the clergy favored him and he had Abbott Suger, who we will soon meet, the newest character on our very crowded stage. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge by Karen Markle Knapp, soon to be available at Amazon Books. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, please give us a thumbs up, save us as a favorite, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Lion's Forge. Available everywhere you get your favorite podcast.